if you uh, looked in your bulletin, maybe not this Sunday, but last Sunday or the Sunday before, we were giving seven challenges to the church. Because we didn't want to be sloppy or careless about our growth. We wanted to be very intentional. And so we crafted seven challenges for you guys and pick one or two as a family or as a home group and, and let's start learning and growing together. So that was the idea. Now, um, the, the challenges flow from values like enjoying God's grace and extending his glory. Um, I, I know there's one home group, um, and they've chosen during this period to really focus on the relationship with God, and they are committed to spending 7.5 minutes a day with God. I don't know how they got the 7.5. I'm a little bit, I'm, I'm interested in finding out. But I call that a really good step, you know? We're making intentional efforts to do things that we weren't doing before, and we want to be a church that keeps on growing. Can I get an amen from at least Raina? She said amen. Now, I want to talk about challenge number two. Uh, this is one of the, the more interesting challenges. Uh, challenge number two, or it might actually be number three, is you get together with some people, and you have a meal together, but it's not an ordinary meal. You have a meal and you try to remember the global poor around the world who live on $2 or less a day. And so for that evening or for that lunch, you're going to eat like the rest of the world. Now, I don't know if you guys have tried that or not, um, but my family and I tried it for the very first time last week, the week before, it was the week before. And we learned some interesting things. But I wanted to show you a picture of my family enjoying the solidarity meal. Do you guys see that? Is it there? Now, okay, the yellow things that look like intestines, those are eggs that I've prepared, okay? And I just want you to notice how happy my kids look. And I also want you to notice that this is how they looked before they ate the meal, okay? After they ate the meal, it was a little bit of a different thing. But I also realized another thing. This was my experiential, like, lesson. I learned that when you're cooking cheap, you can't afford to overcook anything. And I did not know that you could overcook daikon. I didn't know. Who knew, right? They're so hard. Who knew? I, I, yes, I even overcooked this meal. But there was another home group, and there's other home groups that have been doing this, and they were just uh, kind of talking about their own reflections. Here's the other home group and their meal. Okay, now I'm going to say what you're thinking. That looks better than what Pastor Andrew prepared, and that's true. It does look better. It looks much better. Everything on that counter was $2, $2 dishes all over the place. Okay, this is a very talented home group. And I was asking the home group, like, what did you guys learn? There was one person who was wandering the aisles of Safeway for 45 minutes looking for how in the world can I prepare a $2 meal. And this is what they learned. They learned that it is uh, hard to do cheap and nutritious and even harder to do cheap, nutritious, and delicious. Okay. I'll just take two, you know, <laughs> but that third is really hard to achieve. And so one of the things that we're learning about the global poor is that to eat well, you got to be creative. You got to be resourceful. You got to make a little go a long way, right? And that's part of the experiential learning that we're doing. Well, we have another home group uh, that is 
uh, reading Tim Keller's book on generous justice. It's a great, amazing book that shows how the gospel makes people just, makes them compassionate. And so there have been challenges in the home group to go and to apply. Don't just keep on learning, but let's, let's learn and do and grow and experience. And so um, Rick and Peter, if you guys could come up, they have a story to tell. They, they, they applied what they were learning, but little did they know that they were going to apply what they were learning together, and they were going to apply what they were learning on the East Coast. So let's give them a hand as they come up, and they're just going to tell their story. Uh, I'm Rick Kwan. This is, this is Peter Lum. And our study's been, and we've been going through this, the Tim Keller book, uh, Generous Justice. Uh, one of the things that uh, we just did in the study last week was about who is your neighbor. And we know from Matthew it says, love your neighbor as yourself. And uh, <clears throat> while not every one of our neighbor, uh, well, not everyone that we want to be generous to may be a brother and sister in Christ, but what we can say is that everyone can be one of our neighbors. So uh, what Peter and I experienced was uh, kind of two stories that, that I'll tell. Uh, one is about a neighbor that's far, and one is about a neighbor that's near. So I'll have Peter talk about uh, what we did when we were back in New York. Okay, <laughs> thanks, Rick. So uh, we were, uh, happened to be on a business trip to get uh, separate. We worked for different companies, and uh, we found out that we were both traveling to the East Coast at the same time and going to be in the same place. So <clears throat> we said, how about having dinner in Manhattan? I mean, very cool, right? So we went into Manhattan, we had a, a nice dinner, and uh, I said, Rick, you know, how, how about uh, if we have some dessert now? So we went around the corner to this, uh, if you're familiar with Manhattan, there's this place called Vinieros, which has Italian pastries. So we both got uh, cannolis and we're happy as a clam, and we walked across the street and we're about to get an Uber car back to, uh, to our hotels. <coughs> and, uh, and there was a gentleman that came up, so, uh, Chris, we met a guy named Chris, and uh, he's clearly a homeless person in, in Manhattan, and he said, I'm really hungry. And uh, so Rick said, you want the rest of my cannoli? And, uh, and I said, wow, that's, you know, we gave him his cannoli. So <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty awesome. So uh, he said, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'd really love to have some, some meat, so... So Rick said, well, how about if we take you across the street and uh, we buy something at the corner store there? So there's a corner deli. And so we said, great. So we went across the street, uh, walked into the deli, and uh, Rick bought him some things with uh, whatever money he had there. And, uh, and then he asked, you know, can we pray for you? And so uh, in the middle of the store, you know, with other folks there, we, we just sat there and prayed for Chris for a little bit. So... Uh, and uh, it, was, it was just a, a really good way to, to think about God saying, this is what generous justice means um, from, our, from our book. Thanks, Peter. Uh, maybe that was a good way of negotiating our guilt for eating those cannolis, right? <laughs> but uh, I think what the most important thing from the story for me was that uh, when we had met with Chris, we just didn't say, well, here's... 10 bucks, go get something to eat, but that we uh, actually spent some time getting a chance to know him, and we asked him, like, where he lived, and then when we prayed for him, we, uh, actually, I did ask the store owner if it'd be okay if we prayed there, just to uh, kind of, you know, 
be courteous to the, to the store owner. And you know, he talked a little bit to us, uh, told us that he's been living on the streets for about 15 years. But that, was, that might have been one of the first times that someone's ever had a chance to just sit and have a conversation with them and ask him a little bit about his life. And we told him that uh, you know, we were giving this sandwich to him because we were Christians. So uh, I thought that uh, the, the important thing about that is just the opportunity to provide a human touch and a chance to, to know someone because in that conversation, there's always a little bit of dignity that you give to someone when, when you talk to them. Um, the, so that's the story about the neighbor that's far. Uh, there's another part to it, which is the, about the neighbor that's near. And that was on Friday. Uh, I was uh, in San Francisco, and I was on my way to go get a cup of coffee. And uh, a person walked by and said, I'm really hungry. <laughs> so anyway, I, maybe I was having a flashback to when Peter and I were in New York. I said to him, I said, well, I said, um, I'll buy you something to eat. I don't feel comfortable just giving you money, but I'll buy you something to eat or a cup of coffee. And he said, sure. So we went to uh, this cafe, and I got him a cup of coffee. And I'm staying in line and getting ready to pay. And <clears throat> I said to him, I said, would you like... Uh, an apple or an orange. He said, no. He said, but thank you. The coffee's fine. And I said, well, would you like a croissant? You told me that you were hungry. And he said, no, it's okay. He goes, but I really appreciate the cup of coffee. So anyway, I, he got his cup of coffee, and while I was paying, he left. So I was heading out the door because I was going to look for him to see if I could pray for him. And he had dashed out, and I didn't see him. And I was about ready to <clears throat> walk away when uh, a person comes up to me and says, oh, well, that was very kind of you. And I kind of look up, oh. Uh, and uh, I said, oh, well, thank you for noticing. I said at, at our church, we've been going through this book called uh, Generous Justice. And I said, I think that one of the things I'm learning is just about uh, trying to reaching out to someone and trying to get to, to know their story and about just there's a little bit of dignity in that. And she said, oh, well, I said, well, glad that you're applying the lesson. Then she puts her hand on my shoulder and says, God bless you. And uh, as I was leaving, so in that story, I was thinking, well, who's the most important person in the story? And I said, and here's a hint, it's not about Peter and me. And while we always want to respond to as something that Priscilla says is the audience of one, and that's clearly what we're, we're trying to do is please, please God. I think that there is something that says that people are watching. And that if people, you know, understand that what you're being motivated uh, to, to help someone is just your love through Christ, that's fantastic. But if they don't know that, maybe it will still inspire them to wonder, well, maybe I should be generous too, and maybe I can be kind. Because it, you know, it, we can all have a mercy, a, a mercy ministry uh, for one-on-one. -on -one. So I think that that's what we learned from uh, a neighbor far and a neighbor close. That's, um, that's, some, that's some good stuff. Um, how many of you uh, have a good experience when it comes to actually caring for someone who's in need? I, I think everyone probably could raise their hand. But here's a question that we don't um, often ask, which is how many of you guys have a bad experience when it comes to caring for someone in need? Anyone here in the room with a not so great experience, you're expecting it to go a certain way and it actually went completely different. Uh, I have a story 
uh, that kind of illustrates one of these bad experiences. It actually involves our dear chairman of the board, told to me by his wife. One day, uh, Kevin was coming back from lunch, and he was passing by 7-Eleven, and he saw a man, I imagine he was homeless, and he was asking for some money. So Kevin approached the man out of the kindness of his heart and said, you know, like, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have are my lunch leftovers, right? Uh, not a cannoli, I don't know what it was, but uh, offered that to the man. The man looked at the leftovers, and he proposed a deal of sorts to Kevin. He said to Kevin, um, I'll tell you what, I will take your leftovers if you go inside 7-Eleven and get me a six-pack of beer. Right? That sounds like a fair trade, right? Because clearly... If he was going to receive the leftovers from Kevin, he was doing Kevin a favor, and maybe Kevin could go and do him a favor, right? Right? Fair trade. And uh, because he had money, but the 7-Eleven owner wouldn't receive his money for beer, wouldn't sell him alcohol. Now, Kevin proceeds to, um, you know, say, apologize and say that he didn't feel right about doing that. And so he took the leftovers and he gently just placed them right by the garbage can at which point the man started to yell at Kevin, right? And I don't know, maybe there was insults that he was hurling at Kevin, at which point Kevin ran away. No, I'm kidding. Kevin calmly walked away and avoided any sort of confrontation. That was not a good experience, right? This man was exceedingly ungrateful. And so, you guys ever have a, a story like that or an experience like that? You, you kind of wish that it would go the way with, like, Rick and Peter, but sometimes you're getting something else that's not as satisfying. Now, I, I, I do believe that if, if we as a community are going to commit ourselves to a kind of lifestyle that, that, that Jesus calls us to, we're going to run into an experience like that maybe quite often. But it's going to happen. It's actually inevitable. And my question to you guys is, what do we do? How do we respond? There is a very simple confession that if we commit ourselves to loving people who are in need, it is not an easy thing to do. It is pretty complex. And it's pretty complex because people are complex. And we all have a default sinful nature. And so it should be easy, and you think it should be easy, but then you get involved, and it's not as easy. But there is this verse in Galatians, very powerful verse. And it says this. It says, do not grow weary in doing good. You guys might remember this. Do not grow weary in doing good. For at the proper time, you will receive a harvest if you what? If you what? If you don't give up, right? And, and here's the thing. Sometimes we have these questions. Sometimes we have these obstacles. And we sort of like passively just give up. And my proposal this morning is why don't we actually ask questions out loud that we actually have been thinking about. Just bring them out into the open. 
And I believe that if we actually address these and work through them and apply the gospel, we can kind of push through some of these natural obstacles and be people who don't give up. And that's what I'm hoping for this morning. So when we talk about loving on the poor, there, there are certain questions that, that come up. And what I want you to do, if you can open your bulletin, take out your outline, and just look at those questions. I want you to tell me which one or which two of these questions resonate with you. Like you remember thinking that at one point in time, you know? And we're just going to go ahead and uh, name some of these questions. I think the first question that naturally came up in what Kevin was sharing, the, the story about Kevin, is what if the person that you're wanting to help is ungrateful and acting entitled? What if that person is not starving? I remember we did this mission in West Oakland, and then at certain points we would go into the homes of the people in the neighborhood, and we found that in these homes they did have TV and they had cable. And so it's like, well, they're not starving. They got some of these things. Do they really need help? I wonder if you've ever asked that question before. What about this one? This is really practical. This is really, really practical. But what if I'm just too busy? I mean, I got a lot of stuff going on in my life. I just don't have time. And this kind of ministry could totally just drain you of resources. What if I'm just too busy? What if I don't have the gift of compassion? I don't know if you ever thought that one. What if I don't have the gift of compassion? Or what if people use the money that I give them to feed an addiction? Or how about this one? What if I'm looking at their situation and I feel like, because I, I know a little bit of the inside of what's going on, what if they're in that situation because they made some poor choices? And that's why they're there. And so if I give to them, I'm kind of enabling them in these poor choices. Okay, now, these are some of the questions that we probably have thought of one time or another. But, you know, it just, it's a little bit shaming to ask them out loud. I want to ask you, which question actually applies to you the most? What I want you to do just for a second is just turn to your neighbor and just share one question like, you know, actually, I have thought this one. And if you could just openly and honestly just share on, the, on those lines, that would be great. Why don't we just do that right now real quick? All right. It sounds like... We got some good questions and a good exchange that's going back and forth. Uh, can we have a little bit of open and honesty? Can you guys just kind of share with me? What are some of the questions that resonate? Or maybe you want to take that question and adapt it. And maybe the question that got the least amount of resonance, maybe I'll just skip that part in my message. So, so um, who wants to go and just share, like, which question have you actually asked? Or if you don't want to share, maybe you can share the other person's question. That will work too. Go ahead. Dion, give me one. Okay, what if I am too busy to help someone in need? That one is the really practical one. Now, how many, how many of you have thought that, were thinking that, that relates to you? Okay, about half of the people here. Okay, well, give me another one. Uh, um, Shirk, give me one. Ooh, okay, that one is actually the hardest question. Okay, 
that one, I'll try to see if we have time to do that. What if I'm going to give them the money and they're going to, I'm, I'm predicting like 95% chance it's going to use, be used to feed an addiction. Okay. Give me one last question. Yeah, Milton. Are they really in need? Look, if they're not starving and they got a TV at home, are they really in need? How many of you like, can relate to that question? Okay, all right. Okay, we got a lot of questions to answer. We don't have much time, and so we're going to try to do this quick, but we really want to handle the Bible with care. Now, what I want to do is for most of these questions, I want to use the Good Samaritan parable to try to answer these questions, okay? But I want to talk a little bit about the parable itself because the parable stands on its own, even if we don't have any questions. Now, this is my question when it comes to the parable itself. Now, before the parable, there's some context, there's some teaching, you know, the conversation. There's a lawyer that stands up and he says, um, you know, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, what do you read in the Old Testament? And he says, love the Lord your God with all of your being. And love your neighbor as what? As yourself, right? Now, this part is like the crazy part. What does Jesus say? He says, you've answered well, but what are the next words that come out of his mouth? Do this and you will live. Now, here's my question. My question is, how did Jesus say those words? Now, why am I asking that question? Because you know um, people have done studies on language, and they say that how you say something, body language and the tone, conveys even more than the content of what's being said. How many of you guys have heard that before, right? How are you doing? Good. How are you doing? Good. How are you doing? Good. You know, I mean, Right? It was the same response, but all three times it meant something different. So my question is, how did Jesus say these, these words? Do this and you will live. Now, how did he say that knowing two things that the lawyer didn't know? Number one, I know that Jesus disagrees with his fundamental premise. Now, the fundamental premise is, what can I do? Let me hear you guys say, do. Okay, what is he assuming? He's assuming that you can do something to inherit eternal life. Now, he's assuming that, right? And I know because I, I've read the Bible, I know my Lord, he does not agree with that assumption. That's not something that he agrees with. Now, here's the second thing that the, Jesus knows, but the lawyer doesn't know. Jesus knows that the lawyer is not doing it, all right? Well, how do I know that? Well, later on it says that the lawyer was trying to justify himself. And then Jesus gives him this parable where the standard of love is way higher than what the lawyer is doing. So we know two things. Jesus did not agree with his assumption. Number two, the lawyer is not cutting mustard. He is not making it in the second commandment. So knowing that, how do you think he said those words, do this and you will live. Now, I'm going to give you uh, my best interpretation on this, uh, and it, it requires me to be a little bit closer. When I'm about, I think Jesus might have had this face when he said those words, verse 28. It's hard because you're looking at me, but I'm, I'm, this is the face that I make when I'm about to say something sarcastic, 
okay? Not right now, but okay, this face thing is not working, but, but I should have photographed my face and put it up there. But, but I think that Jesus was actually being sarcastic. I, 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 that's my interpretation because I know that those two things the Lord doesn't know, Jesus knows. Now, I think it was said like, yeah, right, do that. Right, just do that and you'll live. Right, just like swim to Hawaii, go for it. Yeah, right, build that time machine, go for it. All right, yeah. I feel like he was actually going on that route, okay? Now, if he's going that route, that means that we read this parable differently. That means we don't read this parable in a very simple way. Now there's layers. Now, if Jesus said those were do that right and you'll live like you can do that, then there's two ways to read this parable. Number one, Jesus is saying the bar for fulfilling that command is so high that you, dear lawyer, man, and everyone here in this room and me, myself, we have fallen way short and we need forgiveness. Jesus is going, is partnering with this man in his assumption, leading him to the conclusion that he needs forgiveness. Because he has fallen way short on the first commandment, and he's fallen way short on the second commandment. He needs forgiveness. Now, the second way to read it, which I think is equally true, is that Jesus expects us to actually do what the Good Samaritan did. He is expecting us to do the same thing. But I think you can connect the first message with the second message, which is, if you are really going to live that kind of life, you first need to know that you've been forgiven. In fact, if you don't know that you are forgiven by Jesus when he died on the cross, then you have no power to do the second thing, which is live that kind of life. They're connected. Once I know I need a savior, then I can actually be like my Lord. I wonder if everyone here knows that we have fallen way short of God's holy commands. We need forgiveness. And Jesus actually expects that once we receive his forgiveness, we are changed. And we become like this good Samaritan. We live this beautiful, brilliant life that's poured out for other people. Okay, um, so that's verse 28. I want to talk a little bit more about uh, the, the scripture itself, and then we're going to start answering some of these questions. Um, okay, so the sarcasm part, you got that one. Okay, I just also want to make one more point. You know, it's interesting, when Jesus tells this, this parable, he kind of does this reversal of characters. You guys have noticed this, right? Like, if Jesus is a Jewish man, he's a Jewish man, he's talking to a Jewish audience, normally the hero of the story would be who? Jewish. But why is it that the hero of the story is a Samaritan, the pe people that the Jews despised? Why is that? Why is that going on there? Now, if you make a Jewish man the story, then you can easily say, hey, guys, you guys be a hero, just like this Jewish man. Be a hero. But there's this character reversal. Why is that? Well, this is my best take on it. I believe there's this character reversal because Jesus is setting everyone here in their hearts with the question, what if that were you? What if that were you? What if you were in this situation? Now, I think that's a very dangerous question for us to ask. What if that were you? What if your son were gay? 
Now, once you say, my son, all of a sudden it kind of changes a bit. What if you are the older parent and your kids are neglecting you? Wow, that's a very powerful question. What would you want from them? What if you were the stranger at a party and no one was talking to you? What would you want from someone who actually is really well plugged in? Very powerful question. What if that were you, right? All right, now let's ask the first question. This one had a lot of hits. Dion confirmed it. I'm too busy. I'm too busy. Now, I, can you raise your hand if you are too busy? Because I know everyone here is too busy. Can we just raise your hand just for me right now? Because I'm talking to you. You're busy. I'm busy. We're all busy. We're like, we're, we're busy. Who here is not busy? We're all busy. Now, now here's the observation I want to make. If you were to pull the, the Levite, um, the, uh, um, the priest, and you were to ask them, why didn't you stop? What do you think they would say? I think they would probably say, we were too busy. They would probably say that. It's probably the best, most reasonable excuse. Now, now, let me explain why they were too busy. I don't know if you guys know this. You, maybe you knew I was going to use them as examples of too busy, but maybe you don't know the context. The context is Old Testament purity laws. Now, here's the thing. If the Levite or the priest saw the man and stopped, right, and you could talk to the man, or maybe they needed a shaking and you touched them, what if they're dead? If they're dead, they're unclean. If you touch, you clean, you touch someone unclean, what happens? You become unclean. It's interesting for Jesus the opposite way. If you're unclean, he was clean, he touched you, you become clean. But, but we not Jesus, and so, you know, we're, we're unholy, and he's uh, 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 unclean, and so I get unclean. Now, now, check this out. Once a person is unclean, they are unclean for guess how many days? Seven days. Now, you got to take a bath on day three or day seven, and day seven. If you don't, you are still unclean. So imagine a family man who's been serving at the temple, and he's coming home, and once he comes home, he's like, honey, don't come out. I'm home. Kids, keep the kids away from me. And she's like, what? Well, I, there was a, a dead man, and I touched him. I'm sorry. I know I was going to touch dead people, but I did it. And for seven days, you couldn't touch your family. They couldn't touch you. No one can touch you, actually. Now, is that going to get in the way of your family life? Honey, I can't bathe the kids. I just can't touch them. You know, Yes. Is that going to get in the way of your work life? Yes. Is that going to get in your way of being? Yes, absolutely. This person had a really legitimate excuse. Look, I'm too busy. That's a seven uh, day. Uh, I don't have those seven days. Well, you just, what, you just talked to him. Hey, you okay? You don't have to touch him. Yeah, but what if he's near dead? You put him on the donkey and then he dies on the way. How are you going to get him off your donkey? It's complex. Thank you. It is complex. But here is the Lord using this story and saying, you guys, we are all so busy. I know, but we make time for the things that matter. Right? We make time for the things that matter. I always make time for the things that I enjoy. Well, imagine Jesus saying, this matters. This matters. Make time for this. Make time for this. 
What are some places in your life where, you, where you know, Jesus is calling you to make time, to make time for it? Maybe you're passing by a homeless man, and it's on the way to work, and you're always busy. Imagine Jesus saying, make time. It, it actually is going to take, if you have a no-cash policy to take that person out to lunch, to buy him lunch, to give that person lunch, that takes time. Or to stop and say, hey, how are you doing? Smile, you to pray. That takes time. It takes time. And not just on the street. This is not just homeless people. This, this is like when you go to a party. Like maybe, maybe a child has a party. You go to a party and you're looking around like who doesn't fit in here? And what are their needs? Maybe they're new. Maybe they're socially awkward. I don't know. But they have some needs. And imagine Jesus saying, make the time. Go across the room. Shake a hand. Smile. Share a story. Make the time. Do you think that applies to like coffee hour? Maybe. Does that, that apply to like... No, yes, no. And Jesus would be like, make the time. There are people in your very church who are not feeling loved. Make the time. Can I hear you guys say make the time? Okay. I can't, I'm too busy. Okay, um, number three. What if they are not grateful? How many people have some ungrateful people in your lives? Raise your hand. Just me. How many people are ungrateful? Raise your hand. Okay. Oh, let me just say, mom and dad and you as a teenager. How many of you were grateful teenagers? Raise your hand. No one. I was not too. I'm still not grateful. Mom still comes over. I still kick up my legs and I hardly ever thank her. We're still ungrateful. Okay, but, but here's the point. I want to go to back to the story of the Good Samaritan. Now, if you look at the story of the Good Samaritan, you see all these things that the Good Samaritan does. He sees. His heart is stirred with compassion. He makes the time. He moves. But what you don't see is what the Jewish victim guy does. You don't know how he responds. Why don't you know how? I mean, okay, put it this way. He could have waken up in the morning and said, hey, where's the guy who brought me in? Oh, he had to go. Well, at least it could have stayed the night, maybe a couple more days. That would be ungrateful. That's a good example of ungrateful. He could have left me his donkey. I like the donkey. That, that would be like asking for more. You're ungrateful. Now, we don't know. Maybe he could have. I actually doubt he did. But maybe he could have did, did that. But Jesus didn't even seem to think it was necessary to put in the story. Why? Well, I don't think Jesus thought it was that important how the people respond. It seems that the focus is on you and how God stirs your heart and what you go do out of love for God and love for people. That seems to be the focus. Compassion is not conditioned on gratefulness. Let me say that again. I thought that was pretty good. Compassion is not conditioned on gratefulness. Compassion gives unconditionally, expecting nothing in return. Now, can I ask you, can you do that? Let me give you some examples. How many of you have mother-in-laws? Raise your hand. Let me ask the question again. Can you do that? Come on. Come on. That's like one of the hardest relationships to be unconditional and loving. Hardest relationships to do that. What about someone in your past who has really injured you? Can you unconditionally forgive them? Well, no, I mean, if they came to me and they were humble and they apologized and they're speaking from the heart, I'd be like, oh, yeah, we, we hug. No. 
What if they don't? Can you still unconditionally forgive them? Because right now we don't know what the response is. And we don't know if this person is asking for forgiveness. But can you do it? Because forgiveness and unconditional love is not conditioned by gratefulness or their response. I think there's some people right here who really need to do the heart homework of forgiveness. And I actually think you can't do it unless you know God has forgiven you. That very first message. Unless you know how far you've fallen and the grace he's given you, suddenly you become empowered to forgive people that you kind of feel like are unforgivable. Can you give without expecting anything in return? Okay, let's ask another question. Let's ask another question. What if someone is not starving? Okay? Maybe they're asking for money and they want some food. I'm looking at them and they seem to be well-fed. You know what I'm saying. I'm not going to say some bad words. They seem to be well-fed. I don't think they're starving or I know them. Maybe it's like a family member. I've gone and they have a TV and their TV is bigger than mine. How can they say that they're in need? Is that a legitimate question? I think that's a legitimate question. Okay, well, let's work on this question. But first, I want to do it in a creative way. I'm going to show you guys some pictures. And I want you to be asking yourself the question, what do I need to live a happy life? Okay? That's the question. What do you, what do I need to live a happy life? All right? And if you think that you do need that, I'm not judging you. I just want us to be as honest as possible, okay? Can you turn to someone next to you and say, please be honest as possible? Okay. Now, let's be really honest. How many of you feel like, if I'm going to live a happy life, I need this thing right here? Come on. Oh, yeah. Okay, now here's what I want you to do. If you feel like you don't need it, I want you to raise your hand, okay? Okay, you don't. Oh, wow. Okay, that's like 50%. What do I do with that? Should I keep it? No, I'm going to throw it away. Actually, I like coffee. I'm going to keep that. (laughs) Okay, I I get to veto your veto. Okay, here we go. I'm keeping the coffee. How about this one? This one is just a, it's a house, right? We're not talking about something extravagant, but it's a place where you can lay your head in warmth and there's a roof over your head because it's been raining. How many feel like I would need a roof over my head to be happy, to live a happy life? Okay, that's that's most of us. I'm going to keep that one. Okay, how about this one? This one. You need this one. You need it. You need it. Pam needs it. Look at her. Her hand went straight up. I need that. Give that to me. It's just a picture. Don't go up. Don't get excited. Just a picture. How many of you feel like you need what this represents? It's dessert, delicacies, chocolate, sweets. Okay, not as many people. I'm going to throw it. I'm going to throw it. I'm going to throw it. No chocolate for you. Okay. How about this one? I need this. When I'm in the grocery store, I need this. I'm waiting in line. What do you want me to do? Just stand there and, and meditate? I need this. How many of you feel like, I need this to be a happy life? Be honest. I'm not going to judge you, but I'll remember who, no, I won't, no one does. I'm going to, okay, some college students are like, I'm being honest. I'm being real honest. I'm going to be audacious, yes. Now, how many? The last time I'm going to ask. Okay, I'm going to throw that away. We don't need that one. How about this one? Media, screen time. Would you be happy with no screen time? You would. Some people, I'd be happier. (laughs) And that's a different message. Let's just talk about that. How many of you would want the screen time? Go ahead. Okay, now I'm going to throw it away. I'm going to throw it away. Okay, how about this one, your pets? I need my pets. 
Yeah, some people that emphatically, I'm keeping that one. Somebody like, I need my pets. How about this one? I need a job. At least to pay the bills, purpose in my life. Okay, I need that one too. What about this one? iPad. I need the iPad. My kids would be like, I need the iPad. Daddy, I want that more than the food. Give me the iPad. Okay, no, no iPad. What about this one? You need friends. You need close friends. Come on, guys. We all need close friends. Okay, how about this one? How about this one? Your family. Not your family, but the family here in this picture. You need... You need that spouse. That's a good-looking spouse. And those kids, I need those kids. Those kids, not my kids. Okay, how about this one? From time to time, you got to go and get away. You need that vacation. From time to time. Okay, okay. Now, now think about this. Okay. Um, these are all the things that we feel like we need. Coffee, I vetoed that one. I need a place to live. I need some pets. I need some work. I need some friends. I need my family, and I need from time to time to get away on vacation. Now, here's the point. If those are your needs, and we are called to love our neighbor as we love ourselves, then doesn't this other person who's not starving but need help, doesn't that person also have those same needs? They have the same needs as we do. Now, we would want help. We wouldn't want these things even if we're not starving. But if we love our neighbor as we love ourselves, then shouldn't we, by the same standards of a happy life, give to them the same things? Now, I, I have a place to say, look, I don't really feel like we need these things to be happy. Now, that's another sermon. But let's just say these things we need for a basic level of happiness in life. Then shouldn't the homeless guy on the street, my family member who needs help, this person right here, also be given the same needs? We would want it for ourselves. And shouldn't we fight for that to give to other people too? They have the same needs. And Jesus calls us to love one another as we love ourselves. All right, one more question, one more question. You know what I'm going to do? I think I'm running out of time. I'm going to have you guys on your way home talk about the what if the you know, money is going to feed an addiction. I think that's a really intriguing question. I would love to hear what, what you talk about and what are the fruits that come from that conversation, but I'm going to skip it today. I hope that's okay. But it's something for you to talk about on the road. But question, this is the next question. What if this person got into this hole because they made unwise choices? They don't know how to manage money. They put it on the wrong things. They, they, they spent more than they made. That's how they got in the hole. Now, if I give them money, it's, it's like I'm, in, I'm enabling them to continue to do that. Okay, I'm not going to completely answer this question, but I want to give you guys some, some food for thought. And maybe those, the, the food for thought will create some empathy. Now, I, I've told you this before. I, I, am, I am cheap. I was born that way. No, I'm, I'm not kidding you. My, my wife is frugal. And she was born that way. And my theory is there's something out there called the cheap gene. How many of you feel like you have the cheap gene? Raise your hand. Okay. That's, that's like more than half of the people here, right? And this, this gene goes by other names. People have called it the hoarding gene. People have called it the Chinese gene. I mean, it goes by different names. <laughs> different names. But this is what I'm saying by there's an innate disposition. I have two boys. 
And Rain and I started this money jar system. There's tithing money. There's long-term savings for college. You know, right, really, because it's expensive. And then there's spending money This in the jar. Now, here's, here's the thing. I'm not going to tell you who, but one of my sons spends way more than they get, than they make. Even to the point where at certain moments, my son was going into debt. <laughs> my son was going into debt. You know, there's nothing in the jar, and IOU tickets in the jar. Something like that. There are moments like that, right? And, you know, I, my response, I'm looking at him, like, you know, like, who do you think you are? Like, the U.S. government? Like, who do you think you, did I raise you as an American? No, you're not just American, you know. But then my other kid, my other kid, he has the hoarding gene. <laughs> He will not spend anything. I'm not telling you who this is, but in the jar, he's amassing a little bit of a fortune. You know, one time I feel like I called him going, precious, you know? And, <laughs> it, and, and then I'm worried that he's going to take the money, fill it up, he's going to pour it all over his bed and sleep on the money. That's what I'm afraid of, right? Now, these are both, these are both my children. They're mine, right, Raina? They're mine? Yes, they're mine. I, I don't understand how they could be so different. Now, now, here's the thing. I, I'm cheap, but I grew up with cheap parents. I mean, frugal parents. Really, really frugal. So you combine this innate quality with, with a cultural background, with parents who are savers. And yes, I'm a savior. A saver. <laughs> Let me clarify that. I am a saver, but there's only one savior. Okay. I'm just like that. And here's the thing. There are other people who are the other way. And they did not have parents that modeled. And they don't have a cultural heritage that saves. And so they are more vulnerable, combined with their free choice, to actually go a certain direction where there might be pitfalls, where there might be misspending, where they could actually spend more than them. These things that I have, my culture, my, my, my parents, just my own genes, I didn't choose that. That was just what was given to me. And for other people, they, they, they didn't choose these things. You can't totally blame it on choice. A lot of this is just how you were made or what you were given, what was modeled to you. That's not choice necessarily. So does that evoke a little bit of empathy for people who have a completely different background? Maybe a whole new worldview on looking on money, spending habits that are not the same as yours. Is there room for us to, to, to have empathy? What if you were a natural spender, you made some unwise decisions, you got in a hole? How would you want other people to think of you and your situation? Probably with compassion. Um, I'm going to leave the last question, which is, um, what if they use money to feed an addiction? I'll leave that to you guys. Um, as the, the parable wraps up, um, Jesus says to the lawyer, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor? And the lawyer says, the one who showed mercy. And then Jesus said some remarkable words after that. He said, you go and do likewise. You go and do likewise. Jesus actually expects us to live this kind of life. But you know something? He's not expecting us to live that kind of life without seeing the big picture. Now, what's the big picture? The big picture is that dying Jewish man who's beaten within an inch of his life lying on the road. That is you and me. That's you and me. That's our condition. 
Now, we were sick and dying of sin. That was our condition. That was our hole. We were lying there on the road. And Jesus walked down our dangerous path. And he saw us and he touched us. And here's the thing. He didn't just risk his life. He didn't just put his life in harm's way to save us. He actually gave up his life to save us. And that's why he died on the cross to forgive our sins. We were in over our heads in sin. And Jesus died on that cross to forgive us. We first must come to this acknowledgement that we have sinned, that we need a Savior. And once we have Jesus as our Savior, then the word is, you know, you have been saved for a glorious purpose. Go and do likewise. This week, this Monday, on the way home, who in your circle has needs? Neighbor love gives without expecting anything in return. That is what Jesus did for us. And that's how we're called to live. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for the amazing message, the amazing fact that you came here to die for us, that you saw us in our sorry condition, and not only did you put yourself in harm's way, but you gave up your life for us, Lord. We are so indebted to you with a debt that we can never repay you. Thank you for giving to us. Thank you for being our Savior.